coming up on Philosophy Talk, new books for your summer reading list. Am I being nice? Am I being good? Am I caring? Am I trying to be friendly? How to be perfect, the correct answer to every moral question. Am I being too selfish? Am I treating other people the way that I would want to be treated? These are questions that consequentialism and focusing on consequences really can't answer and don't have the resources to answer. The Good It Promises, The Harm It Does, critical essays on effective altruism. This is a band-aid on a system that is bleeding heavily. So it becomes more politically urgent to hear what lower class people have to say. Recording Russia, trying to listen in the 19th century. And it becomes more possible to imagine that the things they have to say can be recorded and circulated. It's our annual summer reading list. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs. And I'm Josh Landy. We're coming to you from the studios of KLW San Francisco Bay Area. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where I teach philosophy and Josh directs the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today's episode has been generously sponsored by the Division of Literatures, Cultures, and Languages at Stanford University. It's our annual summer reading list thought-provoking books for thoughtful readers. This year, we've picked out a few new titles that caught our interest, including one that takes a new look at effective altruism, a topic we discussed in an episode last fall. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Laurie Gruen from Wesleyan University. She's one of the editors of The Good It Promises, The Harm It Does, critical essays on effective altruism. We'll also be joined by our Stanford colleague, Gabriella Safran. She's a professor of Slavic languages and literatures and has a new book called Recording Russia, Trying to Listen in the 19th Century, which is all about middle-class writers trying to represent the voice of the people. And we'll take summer reading suggestions from listeners like you. But first, let's kick off this year's summer reading list with a little bit of television. You're okay, Eleanor. You're in the good place. The Good Place, which aired for four seasons on NBC, followed a group of misfits as they navigated moral questions in the afterlife. It was created by Michael Schur, who consulted a bunch of philosophers, like our friend Pamela Hieronymi from UCLA. Yeah, one of my favorite moments in this show is when Chidi, the philosophy professor, gets impatient with his students. I just don't feel like you're engaging with the material, oh, like with the trolley problem. That was just tricky, that's all. Why don't you just tell me the right answer? Well, that's what's so great about the trolley problem is that there is no right answer. Ugh. This is why everyone hates moral philosophy professors. I'm on your side here, dude, but he is not wrong. Yeah, not only does everyone hate moral philosophy professors, they kind of hate moral philosophy too. And can you blame them? Seems like a quest to be a perfect person would make you miserable. Oh. Boy, that has an interesting aftertaste. Is that from a nearby river? Oh, no. Why take fresh water away from the beavers and the fish? Uh, no, I have my composting toilet hooked up to a water filtration system. One man's waste is another man's water. Mm. And both men are me. <laughs> <laughs> the Good Place wrapped in 2020, but its creator had enough of the philosophy bug to write a book called How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question, and to join us on today's program to talk about it. Michael Schur, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So, Michael, in this book, you tell us you love philosophy, you love Beckett, you love Woody Allen, but you kind of feel bad about it. You love single malt whiskey. You hate the Yankees. You think Heidegger's a fascist. You have a bad sense of direction. You think running is awful and no one should ever do it unless they're being chased by a bear. My question to you is, are you my long-lost twin? 
<laughs> oh, I'm glad to hear that I have a, I have a soulmate. And uh, that, I mean, though, to me, those that list you just made, like that's a good person. If you want to know what a good person is, it's that it's someone who inhabits that list of characteristics. So you thank you. Down. Wait, wait, wait. I, I lose points for liking running. Correct. That is absolutely correct. Yes, you're a bad person. So, so this kind of brings me into another question. So, so I'm. I kind of identify with Chidi in the good place where I would really like to be a good person, but I kind of get paralyzed. There are so many choices I have to make every day. There seem like so many possible ways for me to choose wrong. What am I supposed to do? Great question. I think that most philosophers that I have met fall into the general category of cheaty. Like, what are the things that you're doing when you write a television show? Is you're trying to create characters that folks can identify with, right? Uh, that's a pretty basic idea. And I've never had any group of people more directly relate to and identify with a character than professional academics and <laughs> philosophers in particular and Chidi Anagonia. So uh, you're not alone. And I would also say, by the way, that I identify with him too. It's part of why this subject matter became so interesting to me and so important to me is that as the, I found that the more I cared about the world that I lived in and the more I cared about other people, the more impossible my life started to seem because when you decide that all of the things you do mean something and matter then you start questioning all of the choices you're making and there is a ignorance is bliss thing that you leave behind right and as soon as you learn about uh you know global warming or climate change you start thinking like it gets all the way down to the to the microcosmic level of, well, should I buy this pair of socks or not? And it can be maddening. And so, you know, I think the the show uh, and to, to a large extent, the book was making the argument that the important thing is that you care one way or the other, whether you're a good person and that you try wherever you can to be a good person. That to me is actually more important than the sort of impossible to answer question of, am I actually achieving that? Am I a good person? Because the attempt at virtue to me is is the thing that is um, that matters the most. So I was going to ask whether it was a mistake uh, for me to have taken my first philosophy class, because it would be so much easier <laughs> if I hadn't done that. So, so, so why why is this agonizing good and important? Well, I mean, this is sort of a reductive argument, I suppose, but like, what's the option? Not caring at all? You know, I, I just, I got to a point in my life where I thought in the moments where I was like, God, it's so irritating to have to care about this stuff, to have to care about every consumer choice you make and every friendship choice you make and every parenting choice you make with this extra added level of like, is this virtuous? Is this, you know, deontologically correct? Whatever your methodology is. As annoying as that is, it just occurred to me at some point, like, well, the option is that you don't care. And I just can't believe that the right answer in terms of how to live our lives on earth is to not care one way or the other, whether the things you're doing are good. So look, it's annoying, I get it. I mean, that's what a lot of the book is about is how annoying it is to, to care about this stuff and how much of a pain in the butt you are to your friends and family members and everyone around you. But I think it's a far better outcome for an average life on Earth to care and be a little bit annoying about it than to not care at all. I just can't see how that's the right answer. 
Yeah, and one thing I, I love about this book, How to Be Perfect, that you take all these theories, deontology, consequentialism, virtue ethics, contractualism, Buddhism, you also talk about Ubuntu, and you kind of boil them down, I think, very helpfully to a set of heuristics. So, you know, ask yourself, would it be okay if everyone did this? Ask yourself, how many people will be happier or sadder as a result of me doing this rather than that? Am I being a good kind of person? I mean, those seem like very... You know, on the one hand, you could say, yes, they're, they're fairly simple um, guidelines. On the other hand, they, they're kind of powerful. I think so, too. And I think that the expressed goal of the book was to say, look, I don't understand this stuff nearly as well as folks who have studied it their whole lives or, um, or, or who specialize in it. But I think I understand them well enough to be able to relate their central ideas. And that became the project of the book, really, was to say, like, hey, I think there's a lot of people out there who would hear words like deontological reasoning or <laughs> consequentialism or whatever and think like well i don't understand that there's no chance that i could ever relate to those ideas or those issues and the point of the book was to say like no the the words are they have a lot of letters in them and they have a lot of syllables but the, the ideas <laughs> contained in these theories are pretty straightforward like i i'll tell you i did when during covid my son was in sixth grade and we were desperate for things for him and his classmates to do that weren't, you know, look at TikTok. And my wife suggested a lot of the kids were watching the show. We're watching The Good Place. And my wife said, you know, why don't you do like a little fun like seminar about the show and about philosophy? Um, because you've been, you know, reading about it and studying it and working on it for so long. And I was a little skeptical. But we got about 30 kids together on a Zoom once a week, and I would give them a couple episodes of the show to watch uh, that were centered around one or the other of the philosophers I talk about in the book. And then we would get on the Zoom. We would talk about the episodes. I would relate to them the philosophy that we were discussing. And the kids were totally engaged and involved and asked really smart questions. And uh, I, I was like, man, you know, if sixth grade students, bright students, but sixth grade students can you know, interact with these ideas and press me on, on the details of them and seemingly understand them and get something out of them. Well, that's a good sign because that means that at, at a, their heart, these ideas are things that anybody in the world who cares to understand them can understand. So do you have a favorite of these ideas that you want to lay on us now? My favorite of them that I stumbled into was contractualism, I have to say. Um, contractualism is like this really pragmatic view of the world, which is we share the world with other people. We cannot function without the cooperation and the understanding of other people. And in order to sort of lay out the rules by which we will all live, we need other people to agree to them. And that's annoying because other people are frequently very annoying. And <laughs> it seems... Uh, like a a little bit of a pipe dream. It seems like a little bit of a, a, a fantasy land. But the way that it's laid out in Scanlon's book, uh, What We Owe to Each Other, is sort of like, let's get down in the muck. Let's get down in the dirt and, and really like hammer this thing out. And it's not going to result in a perfect utopian society where everybody's holding hands. In fact, far from it. It's going to result in a sort of bare minimum baseline of understanding of the rules we all agree to. I really found there to be something sort of beautiful in that idea, honestly. It really sort of moved me to think that that would be the way that we would go about um, making rules. 
I don't consider myself necessarily um, a contractualist. I, I think if I personally have any one philosophy that I adhere to, it's closer to Aristotelian virtue ethics. I think that I knew I, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you always got a soft spot for virtue. Ethics. Yeah, I do. I, and I, I find it, uh, and I write about this in the book a little bit, but I find virtue ethics to be the most forgiving of all of the philosophies because built into virtue ethics is this idea that we're going to sort of make mistakes all the time. We're going to blow it. We're going to try to do something we think is the right thing to do and we're going to fail. And what it asks of us is no more than a sort of self-examination and a, and a debrief and a sort of understanding of I was a little bit too much this way or I wasn't quite courageous enough in that moment or I was a little too angry in that moment. It's pretty close to what a person who has no experience with philosophy at all would do if that person were trying to become a better person. It's really just a sort of ongoing, endless process of honing and and pruning the hedges and trying to get everything it, at the right level, at the right balance. So I think I tend to live my life a little more like that, but the philosophy that sort of lit a, lit a fire in my brain um, the most probably was contractualism. That's one of the things I like about your book, How to Be Perfect, that it, you know, it's not afraid to get into difficult philosophical and moral territory. And one of the things I particularly resonated with in that regard is the the chapter about uh, great art by bad people, mm. uh, which is a really, really difficult topic. I'm so grateful to you for, for you know, getting stuck in there. I mean, it reminds me of that documentary Kamau Bell made, we, we Need to Talk About Cosby, where Cosby meant and something really important to people. And so you, yes. on the one yes. hand, you have to let it go in a certain sense, or, or you have to change your attitude, certainly have to change your attitude towards the person, but you can't just pretend that that didn't mean anything to you. Right. How many stand-up comedians became stand-up comedians because they heard himself the album himself when they were seven years old or whatever like you can't you can't go back in time and undo that but the problem is is if you pretend that the second part of it doesn't exist the part of it where you now know that this person in bill cosby's case did utterly horrifying things to hundreds of women over decades of his life well now you're just saying that there are no consequences for bad behavior, that people, if they're talented enough, can get away with whatever they want to get away with. That's not any kind of society that anyone wants to live in either. So the best you can do is kind of remember both of these things at the same time all the time. And the reason I think it's hard to do that and that people don't want to do it is because it makes it impossible to go back and ex experience that person's art in the same way that you did when it was meaningful to you, right? You can't, there's no pure interaction with that art anymore. And the answer to that is, well, tough, too bad. Like that's the deal. You just, you can't unlearn things about people. You can't ignore them. And you're right. That person has spoiled your feeling toward their art to some degree. And that's the best we can do. And I, and look for, in, unless you are completely just living under a rock, like we all have these people, right? We we all have musicians and artists and painters and and you know symphony orchestra conductors. I mean, there is no aspect of the sort of cultural tapestry that has not been deeply affected by this, and and more so recently than at any time in history. So this is a thing we all have to grapple with. We all have to deal with, and I don't really see another way around it. 
So, Michael, what is the correct answer to every moral question? <laughs> I, as a kid who um, really loved the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I'm tempted just to say the correct answer is 42. Wait, this um, too? I'm sorry, you really are my long-lost twin. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope Douglas Adams didn't do anything awful, so I can mm, still yeah. think of that book fondly. Um, uh, there's no obviously there is no answer to every moral question the the closest again that i think you can come is the answer is you got to care about whether or not you're coming up with the right answer and as long as you care as long as you're trying that is sort of all that can be asked of any of us on this mortal plane michael thank you for the wonderful book and the wonderful conversation and for the good place i still love chidi so much i'm glad to hear it thanks for having me Michael Schur, creator of TV's The Good Place and author of How to Be Perfect, the correct answer to every moral question. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org. Philosophy Talk.